my go bombin welcome to the tolkien lore channel i'm the tolkien geek and this is going to be the third video in my series on the john borman script of the lord of the rings which thank goodness never got made uh last time you may remember we left the fellowship after their boat had run aground on the shores of the anduin river after being attacked by orcs and some of the members actually got shot unlike in the book and believe it or not, that is where the movie has its intermission. So it wasn't completely random that I stopped there, even though we hadn't even gotten to the breaking of the Fellowship. This is apparently more or less the halfway point of the movie. Uh, now, not exactly the halfway point, but you get the idea. So I'm going to pick up from there, and this particular section of the story is strange for reasons completely different than the previous two videos that I've done. Before I get to that, I do want to remind everybody that I now have a Discord open. The link will be in the description below. You can go join that and find a bunch of my other fans talking about all kinds of interesting things related to Tolkien. You can give me suggestions there. You can do all kinds of stuff in that Discord server that's fun. And I'm also now on a new video platform called Utreon, where you can support me pretty much exactly as you would in Patreon, except Utreon actually gives me more of it and keeps less for themselves, so they're competing with Patreon on those grounds and YouTube on the video hosting grounds. So if anybody wants to support me on Utreon, you get the same exact benefits as Patreon, but it helps me more, so feel free to do that. So... Now let's take a look at John Borman's script again, picking up with the Fellowship now traveling on ground after leaving their boats behind. So one interesting thing about a lot of this section of the book is, I mean, this section of the movie is it's fairly true to the book in some respects. So I'm going to be giving kind of short shrift to a lot of the plot. I'm just going to be noting the minor differences some of it has. And it's going to start doing that pretty early because after walking for a while, the fellowship basically comes to a stop and says, okay, we got to decide where we're going to go. And they all kind of leave it to Frodo to make the decision. Boromir, of course, wants to go to Minas Tirith. Aragorn says they need to go to Mordor. And, of course, there's no tension for Aragorn. He's not torn between going to Mordor and Minas Tirith because... We don't get any of this stuff in his backstory about how he's the descendant of kings and he's going to reclaim his birthright and all this other stuff. So we don't have any of that. It's just a conflict between Aragorn and Boromir. But at any rate, they give Frodo the decision. Frodo asks for his hour to make a decision. And Aragorn says, sure. So he starts walking up this hill. The Boromir-Frodo scene happens more or less as in the book, just truncated down for obvious time compression reasons. And unlike in the book where Boromir comes back and then tells everybody what's going on, and then they all scatter off and try to look for Frodo, the rest of them just become restless in the waiting and decide to go look for Frodo, and they meet Boromir coming back down the hill, who just kind of inarticulately says that, you know, Frodo is up there somewhere because he doesn't really know, and he's still kind of weepy from the whole event. Meanwhile, Frodo has had his vision of seeing a bunch of different things going on in Middle-earth, though there's no I'm on him per se, and he gets his encounter with the Eye or the Tower and has his 
instant where he's trying to take off the ring. And here he does it without any prompting of a second voice. It's not like there's two voices yelling at him and then suddenly he has this moment of clarity where it's just him. It's just he's struggling and he finally takes it off. So it's a little bit different there, but not hugely. After the rest of the Fellowship meet Boromir, the rest, all of them go on except Boromir and Merry and Pippin. Merry and Pippin are kind of straggling behind and they wait with Boromir and kind of try to comfort him a little bit, but the rest of the Fellowship move ahead trying to find Frodo. They get to the top of the hill and Aragorn ends up seeing Frodo actually in the distance and Sam running after him because Sam kind of realized what Frodo was probably doing. Although in this particular version of the story, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there are no boats to get back to. There is no only way for Frodo to to do what he plans to do. So how would Sam know where to find Frodo in this particular case? So it doesn't it, it doesn't flow as naturally as the book version, because in the book version, Sam knows what Frodo's going to do because he has to go back to the boats. Here, that's not true because there's no river to cross, which is, I don't know that I understand that decision on Borman's part, like why it didn't cut any time to take the river out. But anyway, that that's how Sam ends up going. He, you know, decides to follow Frodo, how he knows where he went, who knows. But at any, po- any rate, Aragorn reaches a point where he's like up on top of the hill and he sees Frodo way out in the distance and Sam going after him and he would go after them themselves except well the whole Urukai thing. Of course the Urukai attack Boromir and Merry and Pippin while they're separated from the rest of the group. Boromir wields both his own sword and the other half of Narsil which Arwen's ghost thing told Aragorn and Boromir to split. It's just so weird. But he's dual-wielding with his own sword plus the half of Narsil that he has. And it goes, you know, pretty much as normal. Aragorn ends up coming to him while Legolas and Gimli are also chasing other orcs around because they all heard his horn. And since there's no river to bury Boromir or to, to send him on the boat, they end up burying him under kind of this old, dead, withered tree. So, not really a whole lot of differences in that aspect of it, except, of course, again, it's kind of time-compressed, but the basics of the story, as far as Boromir's death, are basically there. Once they have buried Boromir, they have to decide what they're going to do. Legolas and Gimli kind of assume that Aragorn is going to go to Minas Tirith because he made a death pledge to Boromir, which wasn't really super clear that he actually made a pledge to go to Minas Tirith. I mean, he talked about something along those lines, but it wasn't really clear that he made some kind of oath that he hadn't follow. But Aragorn decides, apparently despite his own feeling that he did the same exact thing that Legolas and Gimli think he did, that he's going to chase after Merry and Pippin instead, which is kind of weird. Like, why, why would you set it up that way? But at any rate, that's what they decide to do, and they set off running. And one of the weirdest unresolved things in the story happens here because while they're running there's this white horse that they notice running kind of across their path or that's going to intersect their path and presumably this is shadow facts although we never find out for sure and Aragorn tries to you know like get in the horse's way and get it to stop so they can catch it and ride it although how they're going to ride it with three of them 
is anybody's guess. Uh, but of course he doesn't, and Shadowfax, presumably, that's the horse, runs on, and it's like, oh well, didn't get the horse. So, and it's just like, why is this, again, it comes down to this issue of, if you're going to compress the time so much, why did you throw in this completely pointless scene? Because let me tell you, this scene has no impact on anything that comes later in the story. It's just a random scene where a horse runs by, and they try to catch it, and they don't. And that's all we hear of it. Now the scene shifts back to Frodo and Sam, who have gotten into, it's not named this, but it's the Immunmule. I mean, that's that's what they're doing. Uh, pardon my pronunciation, I just don't have it in me this morning. My Immunmule doesn't sound very good. Uh, but anyway, the, the traveling through is kind of normal, but there are some really strange differences between what they do before and after they meet Gollum that deserve note. For one thing, they don't use a rope to climb down the wall of rock that they end up getting down. They just handhold their way down, which is, again, you're going to time compress so much that you cut out the rope, but then you're going to have the scene with random shadow facts crossing Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli's path. Okay, fine. Uh... <laughs> So they're climbing down. They, you know, a lot of the stuff happens kind of as normal. Their encounter with Gollum is a little different, but not so much that it's just weird. The most bizarre thing about the encounter with Gollum is that he he says or implies that Sting was forged by dwarves. What? I mean, there's no reason to change that element of it. I mean, the whole idea is that Gollum is really averse to elvish things in the book, not dwarvish things. Why is Sting suddenly a dwarvish forged weapon? That makes no sense at all. More bizarre than that, however, is when it comes to Gollum swearing his oath, it's actually Frodo who affirmatively tells him to swear on the ring. Which in the book, of course, is completely reversed. He says, swear by it if you must, but not on it, because... When, in the book, this comes up, Gollum, by swearing on the ring, emphasis on on, is literally talking about putting his hand on the ring. Like, if you were in a courtroom, you would put your hand on a Bible to swear on it. Which, I mean, not everybody does that anymore, Not, but in some jurisdictions, that's still a thing, where you put your hand on the Bible. Or, say, when the president takes his oath in the U.S., you, they still usually, as a matter of practice, though not requirement, put your hand on the Bible that is what swearing on something really means, and Tolkien knew it. But here, it, well, in Tolkien's version, of course, Frodo is like, no, you are not going to swear on the ring because all you want is to see it, and the sight of it would drive you mad. You could swear by it, but I'm not going to let you put your hand on it because I'm not stupid. Here, Frodo actually suggests that he swear on the ring, which is also kind of stupid because, as Frodo points out in the book, it will twist your words, but it will hold you. So it's like, it'll make you keep your oath, but you'll twist them and it'll be treacherous. So this whole idea of Frodo encouraging him to swear on the ring makes backwards sense in two ways. But, you know, this is John Borman's script where we can do whatever with the ring. And we'll find more of that later as we go along in the story, let me tell you. The only other major weird thing that happens in this early stage of Frodo, Sam, and Gollum being together is as the sun starts to rise, Gollum has his typical reaction of, ooh, I don't like the sun. And Frodo says, okay, well, we'll stop for now. And they stop. And then Gollum 
keeps moving on, which is weird because he wouldn't want to do that because he doesn't like the sun. And then Frodo has to make him stop by reminding him of the oath that he just took. And see, this is another thing that's backwards from it because in the book, Frodo is rather unconcerned about Gollum because he made this oath and he knows that it will hold him for a long time because there's no, you know, nothing has come to the point where Gollum really has to make a decision between saving his precious or losing it forever. And so he's not usually worried in the book for most of the trip because he understands that that oath is going to hold Gollum, whereas here Gollum is already forgetting about it, and or deliberately forgetting about it, it's not clear which, and Frodo's having to remind him of it constantly, which means if he's already trying to break his word, he probably would throttle you in his sleep. And then we leave off with Frodo and Sam dozing off, and Gollum opens his eyes like, mm, they're asleep. But then the, sheen, the scene shifts back to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and nothing is going to come of that. So it's like, we've already established that Gollum doesn't give a lick about keeping his word because he's already forgotten that he's made an oath and you're just going to let him... Okay, whatever, fine. Anyway, scene does shift back to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. So here's where we get into Rohan and things get strange. I mean, there are some changes here that make some sense given the time compression, but then there are some that are just like, why did this happen? So we see Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli sleep, wake up, run on again. Here, it's Gimli who ends up putting his ear to the ground and hearing the horses. Which, okay, dwarves live in the ground. I mean, I can see why they made that change, but it's Aragorn who's supposed to be that kind of character here. Legolas sees the horses in a distance, and in fact, in this version of the story, he doesn't just see them, he sees them actually fight the orcs that took Merry and Pippin and have their battle. And so they continue running on to try to catch him, and they eventually reach the battlefield while the Rohirrim are still there, clearing up after the battle is over. Here we get another time compression decision, because we find out that Eomer is not Theoden's nephew, he is actually Theoden's son. And of course, we find out that there's a lot of politics going wrong in Rohan because Theoden is not wanting to go to war. Weirdly, it's Legolas who finds the tracks that lead to Fangorn, not Aragorn. And again, it's like Aragorn is supposed to be the tracker, but here, what is Aragorn's role in all this? Like, from the very beginning, we've got almost no idea who this guy is other than that he knows Gandalf and that I mean, that's it. And he's carrying the sword. We don't know that he's the heir of Elendil and Isildur. We don't know that. It's not made clear really until the very end of the story where it finally gets brought up. He's not a tracker. He's not a ranger. I mean, what is he? Why is he in this story? We have no idea to this point. Legolas is taking on his tracking skills. Gimli is taking his earth ground listening skills. It's like, why is Aragorn here? <laughs> uh, anyway... All this is happening while the Rohirrim are still around clearing up. And at, while they're looking around and doing their thing, the horses suddenly get restless and they all see an Nazgul riding across the plains of Rohan. And Eomer's like, oh, I gotta go back to my dad, Theoden, and, and get him to finally decide to, to go to war so that we can defend ourselves. And Aragorn says, well, I'll be off to Minas Tirith, thank you very much. And that's not a joke. That's exactly where he's going next. We're not going to have any of the scene where 
they meet Gandalf, and they go to Edoras, and they meet up with Theoden. We're going to not get any of that. Some of that will come up later, but it's their cha- the script changes how and who and all of that with this. So this is where the story starts to get, like, the basic plot elements are there, but the way it's done is so mixed up, it gets bizarre. The scene then shifts back to Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. Gollum has wandered off when Frodo and Sam wake up, and Sam, of course, is concerned about this. Frodo says, oh, don't worry, he's sworn on the precious s, and yes, he extends his S, which, I mean, okay, the ring is turning him into Gollum, apparently. That's a Gollum, that's a ring thing now, that it just makes you into whatever Gollum is, which... I can kind of understand, but whatever. Gollum does come back, of course, and he's chewing on worms because it's the food he can find. Uh, and then we get to the whole candles in in the mist scene, and Gollum talks about how there was a battle fought there when he was young. So they're not just compressing the timeline of the story itself. They're compressing the timeline of the whole Third Age, which, you know, I mean, there's no real indication of anything like the sweep of time that Tolkien has in this script, so I guess whatever. And then, of course, Gollum ends up telling a little bit of his backstory as him doing the exposition and saying of himself that he was of Hobbit kind. So we get that information, but it comes from Gollum. We don't get it from Gandalf. We don't get it from anybody but Gollum himself. So a little different, but not totally weird. Then we go back to Merry and Pippin, who... We didn't see in the company of the orcs, we didn't see really much of anything, but suddenly they're running scared through the forest, which is obviously Fangorn Forest. Uh, but it's just, we have no idea how they got there. That's just, we just pick up with them after all this time that they've been moving around, and there they are. I mean, we know that they're in those woods because Legolas saw the tracks, but... We don't know how they got there. We don't know why. We don't know any of this stuff. It's just we know that they ended up there, and here we are again. And here is one of the strangest scenes in this section of the script, because they run into a cloaked figure who is Gandalf, but he seems to be Saruman, and he's like he's... I'm not sure if he's supposed to be in something like a drugged stupor or a trance or exactly what he's supposed to be in, but it's like he's completely out of it and doesn't really understand where he is or who he is or what's going on. He does give a line about how he is Saruman as he should have been. Merry and Pippin are concerned that he actually is Saruman or that he's some other dangerous person, and so they're trying to look for an opportunity to kind of sneakily kill him. Uh, And he asks them at some point to tell them of themselves, tell him of themselves, So they kind of start play-acting out their time with the orcs. So we get a little bit of that story, I guess, kind of as a flashback, weirdly. Um, Not exactly a flashback, but you get my point. And as they're doing it, they're trying to sneak closer to where he's got his sword, Gandalf's sword, hanging off of his hip so that they can take it and kill him. And it's like, how do they not... It's not like Gandalf completely changes appearance, and so why would they have such a hard time figuring out who this is? Eventually, Pippin actually does manage to get Gandalf's sword, although he does nothing with it, and Merry and Pippin both try to hold it, Merry falls over with the weight of it, and then suddenly Gandalf laughs, and then that kind of breaks the whole 
tension of everything, and suddenly they all realize that he actually is Gandalf, and then he seems to come back to himself. And then there's this weird scene where he holds his arm out and gets a hawk to or a falcon to circle down and land on his arm, and then it's like he reads his memories and what he's seen, and he sees Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, you know, doing their thing, and he doesn't see Frodo, and so he wonders where Frodo is, and he also wonders if Aragorn has the ring. It's like, why would Aragorn have the ring? (laughs) Then he actually sees Frodo and Sam, so that kind of, you know, answers his question a little bit. Then he sees the Nazgul that was riding across the plains of Rohan, and he says, a wraith has arisen from the wraith essence that was in the river after the nine got smushed by all the, the water and knocked off by all the elves on ponies. If you remember that scene. <laughs> uh, so it's like the nine wraiths have become just one wraith now. And as okay, okay, sure, guys, but whatever. Uh, so anyway, he wonders, because the wraith is riding across Rohan with no apparent anything to stop him, he wonders if Theoden has fallen under the shadow. He he then calls Shadowfax to him, and he takes off with Merry and Pippin. Now, a lot of this stuff with Gandalf and Merry and Pippin is actually very kind of rapidly interlaced with scenes with Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, and it's just too difficult to try to describe all that in detail, so I've kind of skipped over that. And now I'm going to give you a lot of Frodo, Sam, and Gollum that would have been kind of in between all of that stuff. Frodo, Sam, and Gollum are in this area where Frodo is, and Sam actually, are both sinking into some quicksand, and Gollum very slowly. Gollum is doing his whole, should I take the ring, or should I be nice, you know, all of that, and he has this really hard time making a decision, and even starts kind of fighting himself physically over it, like he reaches to grab it, and his other hand grabs it and holds it back, and It's a weirder scene than in the normal one because it's so physical, whereas in the book it's just him talking back and forth and, you know, he might reach for something, but then he pulls his hand back. He doesn't actually have, like, one hand under control and the other one is not. It's it's not really how this works, so... (laughs) Anyway, as Gollum is kind of fighting with himself back and forth, he ends up tripping somehow, which is kind of weird and falling into the mire of the dead marshes, and is sinking, and apparently doesn't know how to swim and can't grab anything, and he calls for help, which wakes Frodo up. Frodo grabs a rock nearby to keep himself from sinking any further, and to try to help Sam, who is already also fairly deeply sunk, and he tries to reach out and help Gollum, but can't reach him, and they actually see Gollum sink below the surface, and then apparently Gollum's gone. Sam points out that, well, look, there's Mordor, and so they wander on on their own with no guidance from Gollum at all along the walls of Mordor. And by the way, by the walls of Mordor, I mean literally the walls of Mordor, because as described in the script, Mordor is not just surrounded by mountain ranges that are impenetrable, it's like mountain ranges, a mount, individual mountains interspersed with actual walls. Why that was done, I don't know. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, but you'll we'll actually see why they did that in a minute. Frodo and Sam walking along the wall. We get this weird scene where Frodo starts to complain of the yellow face, just like Gollum. So again, it's like he's 
almost instantly turning into Gollum here. And, you know, I can understand the idea that the progression of the ring is to make you like Gollum, but it shouldn't be this fast. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But at any rate, they end up finding a tree to rest in for the night when they get exhausted. And then the scene shifts back to Gandalf, Merry, and Pippin. Now, the scene with Gandalf getting to Edoras is weird for a number of reasons. Gandalf just rides in past the guards, doesn't stop to have any kind of formalities, just rides right past the guards like, I don't have time for you, I'm just going in and you can't stop me. Which, on its own, is provocative enough that it should have started a fight and ruined any chance that he had of doing anything. Once they enter Theoden's Hall, which is in a castle, by the way, not like an Anglo-Saxon mead hall, uh, they see a bunch of people doing, not exactly having a party, but there's a woman in a veil dancing. The women are all provocatively dressed. That's the word used in the the script, not mine. Uh, and the men are all wearing cod pieces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he, he rides into this scene where Apparently, the Rohirrim are just kind of barbarians with weird fashion sense, but at any rate. Oh, and the pillars are all decorated with horse skulls. It's like, why would you do horse skulls? Okay, uh, it's just kind of weird. I mean, the horse aesthetic, sure, but why horse skulls? If you love your horses, surely you wouldn't... Never mind, why go down that rabbit hole? Wormtongue, it turns out, is a hunchback, which is completely unnecessary, but I guess they're trying to make him seem like as bad of a guy as possible by making him stereotypically just evil, ugly looking. And Theoden tells Gandalf to get out. Gandalf says he brings aid. Wormtongue kind of sarcastically asks, are Merry and Pippin your warriors? Ha ha ha. Gandalf replies that Wormtongue serves Mordor, and then says that he would set Merry and Pippin against Theoden's guards any day, which, oh, that's dangerous, but luckily it doesn't really happen. He tears a tapestry off the wall, which lets in the sunlight, and then he goes into this really dramatic telling of his fight with the Balrog, which seems completely unnecessary, and why are we doing this in a time-compressed story? But, whatever, I guess we all wanted to know, so we gotta do it, right? Gandalf says that after he died, after fighting the Balrog, it was the spirits of hobbits that brought him back to life. I don't know what that means. Gandalf doesn't explain. The script doesn't explain. Moving on. So he then ends by basically calling on Theoden to fight evil. Wormtongue actually tries to assassinate Theoden in this scene, but of course is stopped. Theoden agrees that he will fight evil, and as a result, Merry and Pippin and Gandalf are, okay, we're going to go right off and do our own thing which is basically go to Minas Tirith, and Theoden is going to ride to meet Eomer and gather up all the riders and then eventually go to Minas Tirith himself. By the way, did you notice what we missed here? There is no Saruman, there is no Isengard, there is no Helm's Deep. All of that gets skipped. We had to time compress all of that stuff so that we could have a scene where Shadowfax runs across the path of Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. We do get some int... Um, cameo material, I guess? Because when we return to Frodo and Sam sleeping in their tree, we find that the tree is very, in an int-like way, breaking through the wall of Mordor, which is right nearby, because it, and it, the script even uses some of the language that 
Tolkien does about how Merry and Pippin describe the Ents doing their thing as if hundreds of years of tree root growth happens in a short amount of time. The tree does that to the wall of Mordor. Now, the tree's not alive, it's not an Ent, but the tree is just helping for whatever reason. And uh, it breaks down the wall. Frodo and Sam recognize this, but they also see beyond the wall that there's a bunch of orcs that have also noticed that the wall has fallen down. And so, the, uh, yeah, you have to wonder, how are they supposed to get in? Well, it's in one of the cheesiest, worst stealth scenes ever, because basically Frodo and Sam pick up a couple branches of the tree to hide behind, and they just kind of stand there at the wall, and when the orcs come to clean up the wall and put it back together, they inch inward, slowly but surely, and... You know, every time, like, the orc captain who's overseeing the other orcs put the wall back together looks over, they stop. And then he looks away, and they keep inching towards Mordor again. And it's like, this is so corny, guys. I mean, this story is supposed to be serious, and then you throw in this absurd scene. It It's just such a weird decision. But, of course, they don't have Gollum to help them get in through Shelob, so, I mean got to do something, I guess, and this was the only thing they could figure out to actually get him into Mordor. Next, we get this really weird montage scene, and it's basically kind of showing all the various groups making their way to whatever end they're going to get to. So you get some things that are not that surprising. Theoden, of course, meets with Eomer and tries to gather up more riders to go to Minas Tirith. Okay, fine. Uh, you get orcs moving towards the Black Gate. Okay, fine. We also get orcs spilling out of the Black Gate onto the Pelennor Fields. Because apparently the Black Gate of Mordor just faces directly onto that now. Because forget geography. We have a map in the dang book, but, you know, who needs to follow that? We haven't followed the story so far. Uh, so that's a little bit weirder. But what really gets weird is Aragorn is riding through a an old battlefield and basically raises an army of the dead who stand up out of their graves and limp after him. Meanwhile, Legolas is running through a forest and calling on wood elves to come and fight, and Gimli goes to some pit, which apparently is a mine, and calls a bunch of dwarves to come fight. Where all this is happening, how all this is happening, I don't know. I don't care. Moving on, we come back to Frodo and Sam who are uh, trying to you know, make their way through Mordor and a bunch of orcs actually come and legitimately spot them and they have to run for it and they end up jumping into a canal of nasty brown looking liquid which then takes them to a tower. What this tower is is not clear. Is it supposed to be Baradur or is it just another tower? I'm really not sure. I think it's supposed to be Baradur, but I could be mistaken about that. At any rate, the canal takes them down to this tower, and they try to grab the grate on the way in so they don't get pulled into the center of it, because it turns out there's a giant whirlpool thing at the bottom. But they end up in it, and next thing you know, they see this rope thing hanging down from above, and they manage to grab it and climb up into this kind of open space where there's not much of anything. Well, it turns out the rope was a giant spider thread, and 
this area is Shelob's lair. <laughs> um, so they have their fight with Shelob, of course, which is completely different because of not being in a tunnel and all the other weirdness. And there's also this crazy part where Frodo, in I think he's actually described as being kind of almost heady, almost like he's drunk or something. Not drunk, but like he's he's acting weird, not in a sober type way. And he says, I'm going to slay it. I am the Lord of the Rings, which is like, oh my gosh, that, that's so, that that's not a cool thing to say. Of course, this doesn't go well because Shelob immediately stings him with her tongue. Okay, that's a new one. Uh, and Frodo drops limp. Sam ends up, of course, fighting off Shelob in more or less the way that he does in the book. And he's sitting over Frodo, and he hears orcs coming down, so he takes the ring and he takes Sting and hides off on you know in the shadows, basically, while the orcs come down. He thinks Frodo is dead. One of the orcs, he can't hear what they're saying from the distance he's at, but he can see him talking over Frodo, and one of them, like, actually cuts his own arm to spill blood into Frodo's mouth, which causes Frodo to choke, proving, of course, that he's alive. And then, and by the way, these orcs kind of came down from above. It's not exactly clear how Shelob fits into all this, but apparently we're just under the orcs' fortress, which might be Barad-dûr. Again, it's really not clear. Uh, but anyway, they take... Frodo up, and Sam tries to follow, but they eventually get to this point where they drop a grill. That's that's the word they use in the script, guys. Um, it, it's, you know, a grate, really, behind, which locks, and Sam can't get over it or through it, and he is stopped. I should note here, by the way, that it is actually after he realizes that Frodo is alive that he has his inner debate with himself that you know, do I go on and just try to finish the quest myself, or do I try to rescue Frodo? Which completely subverts his character, because in the book, it's only when he thinks Frodo is dead that he even contemplates trying to finish the quest himself. Once he realizes Frodo is alive, it's like, oh, well, I gotta save Frodo, obviously. Here, it's after he realizes Frodo is alive that he has this debate with himself. So that kind of ruins Sam's character in a lot of ways, but now he, you know, he is stuck on the outside and Frodo has been taken into the tower. And that seems like a pretty good place to leave this video. I might have two more in me. So this is part three of going over John Borman's script. As you can see, we have looked at a lot of weird things. The way the story is done in terms of timing and in terms of who does what is radically changed in a lot of ways although the basic plot elements are there. Some of the decisions are kind of understandable, but some of them are just bizarre, and some of them don't seem to make any sense even within the context of their own story. Like, where are Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli getting these armies of elves, dwarves, and dead people? I mean, they just, from somewhere in Rohan, they ride toward Minas Tirith, and they just happen to come across all these areas? Or did they go all across Middle-earth to gather? It doesn't make any sense. Like, the tree breaking the wall into Mordor, it's like, we're nodding to the whole Isengard thing, but we're just not really going to do the Isengard thing. But we are going to have Shadowfax cross the path of Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. Gandalf comes back and meets Merry and Pippin, and he's, like, not 
really aware of who he is until he finally is, and Merry and Pippin almost kill him until they get stupid and fall over from the weight of his own sword. I mean, it's just, some of the decisions are so strange. Whatever it is they were smoking or snorting or whatever they were doing when they were writing the script, I don't ever want to get close to. But at any rate, that is part three out of what may end up being five parts of this series. I still am not sure how many more videos it's going to take me to get through this. Uh, but if you're enjoying it, please do give it a thumbs up and share it with anybody else who needs a good belly laugh. Because, let's face it, it doesn't get much worse than this. And at least we're past part two. Part two was, in some objective sense, the worst part. And from here on out, it's just weird. It doesn't get horribly bad, it's just weird. So stay tuned for more incredibly weird stuff. We haven't even got to Denethor yet. He's kind of a strange character in this script. So like I said, share it around, give it a thumbs up, subscribe if you want to make sure you catch all my content. I am on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, Utreon. You can support me over on Utreon or on Patreon. You can follow me at Twitter, on Twitter at JRRTLore. And until the next time, I am the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all my Patreon patrons, especially Ringbearer's Ego Voice and One Patron to Rule Them All, and Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Deanna Kaufman, Tracy Meehan, and Nathan Dufour.